The Judgment of Kings In the spring of 1521, the King of England, Henry VIII, put his handsome signature to a book entitled The Assertio Septum Sacramentorum, Assertion of the Seven Sacraments. Aged 29, Henry fancied himself as the paragon of Renaissance kingship. He had been given an excellent education and sparred with great humanist writers like Erasmus since his childhood. He was also perpetually eager to find ways to enhance what one courtier called his virtue, glory and immortality. As such, Henry took a keen interest in the growing controversy surrounding Luther's writings. Once Luther's books were outlawed by the church, he had given his approval for mass burnings of them in English cities. Meanwhile, in private, Henry saw an opportunity to burnish his own reputation as a thinker as well as a statesman, by contributing personally to the theological debate. His Assertio, a smartly bound, signed edition of which survives in the British Royal Collection, was a response to Luther's 1520 work on the Babylonian captivity of the church. In this, the German professor had argued that most of the seven sacraments of the church, baptism, Eucharist, confirmation, reconciliation, anointing the sick, marriage, and holy orders, were pure folly and invention. Only the first two, he pointed out, had any basis in scripture. This was plainly an affront to centuries of Christian tradition. So King Henry, aided by a panel of eminent Oxford and Cambridge University scholars and the great humanist writer Thomas More, picked up his pen and huffed and puffed his way through a rebuttal. He called Luther an infernal wolf and a great member of the devil. He said he had dragged up from hell itself heresies which ought to lie in eternal darkness. In August, the king's chief minister, Thomas Wolsey, sent 27 printed copies of the finished assertio to an English clerk at the papal court in Rome. In the covering letter, Wolsey asked that one of them be covered in gold cloth and delivered to Pope Leo himself. The clerk was instructed to do this at a moment when the Pope was surrounded by as many people as possible, in order that word of the English king's piety and intellect might get around. Once this was done, Wolsey said, the clerk was to petition Leo for a favour. King Henry hankered for an official title which would advertise his Christian magnificence. Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, Henry's parents-in-law, had been known as the Catholic monarchs. French rulers, including Henry's contemporary and rival Francis I, styled themselves the most Christian kings. Henry wished to be known as the very defender of the Catholic faith of Christ's church. Thanks to Wolsey and his Roman agent, Henry more or less got his way. Pope Leo was shown the Assertio that summer. The day after he saw it, he formally granted Henry the right to append his royal style with the Latin words Fidei Defensor, Defender of the Faith. The title has stuck to this day and is embossed after the monarch's name on British coins and Leo's approval made the Assertio into a minor bestseller. It went through ten printed editions and reached a wide European audience, not least when it was translated from Latin into German. Meanwhile, further works by English theologians such as John Fisher, Bishop of Rochester and Chancellor of Cambridge University, 
helped to reinforce England's reputation as a bastion of anti-Lutheran orthodoxy, where heretics and reformers were not welcome. By the mid-1520s, the English authorities were on ostentatious high alert for Lutheran heresy. German merchants were liable to have their homes raided, sermons against heretics were regularly preached in London, and the government was preparing a plan to resist the arrival of an English-language print edition of the New Testament, being prepared in Cologne by an expatriate scholar called William Tyndale. In retrospect, of course, there was enormous historical irony in all of this. During the course of his long reign, Henry VIII did not prove to be quite the defender of the Catholic faith he had promised. In the late 1520s, he decided he wished to annul his marriage to Queen Catherine of Aragon, with whom he had been unable to father a male heir to the English crown. When Henry could not secure papal approval for an annulment, for reasons that will shortly become apparent, he performed an astonishing religious volte-face. Liberally reinterpreting his role as fidei defensor, he now took the view that protecting the Christian faith did not in fact require his obedience to the Pope, but the opposite. In 1534, he withdrew England from its ancient allegiance to Rome, establishing an independent English church with himself a supreme head. In the course of all this, Henry discarded Queen Catherine, treating her atrociously, and killed her replacement, Anne Boleyn, three years after marrying her. Wolsey was destroyed and died a broken man. Bishop Fisher and Thomas More were executed for refusing to acknowledge the royal supremacy. And Henry himself, once the scrupulously orthodox scourge of Lutheran heresy, became the poster boy for anti-papal politics, a turn of events which in the early 1520s would have seemed so implausible as to be hilarious. Although popular religion in England remained obstinately traditional for several generations, Tudor England ended the 16th century as the most powerful Protestant nation in Europe, virulently hostile to Catholics until the Emancipation Campaign of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. In the grand scheme of English history, the break with Rome was the moment at which contemporaries like the historian and Protestant polemicist John Fox perceived the Middle Ages ending and a new modern age beginning. However, important though these developments in England undoubtedly were, and in the age of Brexit can still seem, the monarch whose stance towards Luther had the most decisive and lasting effect on Western history was not Henry, but another of his contemporaries, Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, King of Spain, Germany, Naples and Sicily, Archduke of Austria and ruler of the Burgundian states in the Netherlands. Notwithstanding Henry's pretensions and the ambition of Francis I, Charles was by some distance the most powerful European monarch of his time, a foundational figure in the history of realms ranging from the Habsburg Empire of Central Europe to the Kingdom of Mexico. After his death, he was remembered, by a friend admittedly, as the greatest man who ever lived. But long before that, in the 1520s, the positions he adopted towards Luther, Lutheranism and the papacy were of definitive importance in the political and religious maelstrom that marked the sunset of the medieval world. In late January 1521, 
just a few months before Henry VIII came up with his assertio against Luther, Charles V convened an imperial diet, a political assembly, in the free city of Worms, a little way south of Frankfurt on the River Rhine. The diet marked Charles's coronation as German emperor in Aachen the previous autumn, a glorious ceremony in which the young man positioned himself as a new Charlemagne, but one which had also posed numerous awkward questions about the shape and structure of his future government. Dozens of sensitive issues were up for consideration at the Diet, including matters of German law, concerns about economic policy, and technical queries about the relationship between the empire and the rest of Charles's extensive territories. Afterwards, however, the Diet would be remembered for one thing only, the dramatic scene played out when Luther, dressed in his friar's habit, and inflated almost a bursting with his customary righteousness, explained to the new emperor in person why he persisted in dragging the good name of the Pope and the Roman Church through the mire. Luther's hearing at the Diet took place over the course of several days, beginning on the afternoon of the 17th of April at a special session convened in rooms at Charles's lodging house, which was ordinarily the local bishop's official residence. As in the past, Luther was granted safe conduct to appear at Worms, and his personal safety was guaranteed by his patron, Elector Frederick of Saxony. He had been promised that if he turned up, he would not be arrested and bundled off to Rome to face Pope Leo. Nevertheless, it was clear from the moment he arrived that Charles hoped to induce Luther to recant his most egregious opinions and writings. This was not a recipe for a happy outcome, for, as usual, Luther could not be silenced by force and would not be silenced by reason. Over the course of several presentations in Latin and German, which Charles, a native French speaker, struggled to follow, Luther revealed just what a formidable debater and scholar he had become. He rapidly dispelled any hopes that he might crumble when faced with the emperor or anyone else and eventually he gave a biting summary of the grounds for his apparently infinite obstinacy. As long as my conscience is captive to the word of God, he said, I neither can nor will recant, since it is neither safe nor right to act against conscience. God help me. Several days later, the inevitable verdict was passed. Charles had seen firsthand that Luther was incorrigible, and that he would have to deal with it. The papal bull condemning Luther would have to stand, and the professor and all who followed him would be considered enemies of the empire as well as the church. We shall pursue Martin himself and his adherents with excommunication and use other methods available for their liquidation, promised Charles. Not for the first time, Luther fled. Despite Charles's fierce words, however, Luther was safe so long as Frederick of Saxony chose to keep him so. The new emperor fervently wished that Luther would shut up, but he was not about to go to war with his new German subjects over it. So at the start of May, Luther was ensconced under Saxon protection in Elector Frederick's fortress of Wartburg in Eisenach, where he remained for nearly a year, working on books that would deconstruct the basis for monastic vows forced public confession, and even the mass as it was generally performed in the West. 
He was also translating the New Testament into German, writing hymns, and contemplating ways to force European Jews to convert to Christianity. Although the latter suggested that there were some medieval prejudices so ingrained that even the revolutionary mind of Martin Luther could not overturn them, in almost every other way he was beginning to write the documents on which to build an entirely new church. Meanwhile, outside the walls of his castle, Luther's friends and supporters had begun to put his theories into action, celebrating masses without ordained priests, agitating for free preaching of God's word, vandalising statues of saints by smashing their heads and hands, and demanding that municipal authorities take action against immoral establishments like pubs and brothels. New preachers, some far more radical even than Luther, and many of them out-and-out firebrands, were busy trying to stir up popular enthusiasm for the new religious mindset, with its tight focus on the individual and its rejection of traditional symbols of public authority. The most extreme reformers, led by the Swiss preacher Ulrich Zwingli, had begun to question even sacraments like infant baptism. For this, they became known as Anabaptists. So, from being a shopping basket of theological and heretical positions, Lutheranism was starting to take on the characteristics of a social movement. Yet as it did so, it was developing a highly rancorous character, intolerant of any resistance. Erasmus noted as much when he wrote about Lutheranism in 1524. He complained that, among the new thinkers, I see some people endowed who are so uncontrollably attached to their own opinion that they cannot bear anything which dissents from it, and wondered where it would all lead. I ask you, he wrote, what sort of sincere judgment can there be when people behave in this way? Who will learn anything fruitful from this sort of discussion, beyond the fact that each leaves the encounter bespattered with the other's filth? It was not long before these lines appeared prophetic. Murderous, thieving hordes. When Luther decided to leave the Wartburg fortress and return to Wittenberg in the spring of 1522, he did so on the basis that the world, or at least his small corner of it, was ready for wholesale reform. He returned to teaching at the university and continued to write, feverishly at times, composing his new church and publishing books and pamphlets, trusting in the fact that the authorities' desire to censor the printing press was not at all matched by their ability to control the flow of information. He enthusiastically encouraged other reform-minded intellectuals in Saxony and as far away as Zurich and Strasbourg to begin dismantling the practices of the Catholic faith and establishing new rites of worship and ecclesiastical groups outside the control of Rome. And he became a keen supporter of clerical marriage including for himself. In 1525, Luther wed Katharina von Bora, one of several dozen nuns he had helped to escape from a convent near the town of Grimma, smuggled away from their confinement on the back of a herring wagon. This was an important milestone in Luther's personal life and in his progress as a reformer for whom nothing but the literal word of scripture was sacred. Yet in the same year Luther married, the unintended consequences of his war against old certainties became horribly apparent when Germany erupted into popular rebellion. 
The Peasants' War of 1525 was the amalgamation of a number of separate, disparate protests across southern Germany, which bubbled up slowly during the autumn of 1524 until massive popular rioting swept estates and cities across Central Europe throughout the following spring. Like the popular insurrections of the 14th century, the first stirrings of rebellion had myriad local causes, but they were brought together by a feeling of generalised, systemic discontent against the wealthy and powerful, and stirred, not surprisingly, by the spirit of the nascent Lutheran Reformation, which was iconoclastic on more than one level. Unlike 14th-century rebels, however, the insurgents of 1525 were well served by the printing press, which allowed rebel groups to circulate propaganda and protest literature. Most famously, this included the 12 articles issued in early March on behalf of a group of rebels from villages in Swabia and written by a Lutheran pamphleteer and preacher called Sebastian Lotzer. This manifesto was a searingly articulate cry for freedom in all its forms, heavily flavoured with calls for religious reform. The rebels called for the rights of villagers to appoint preachers who stuck to the scriptures, for the abandonment of serfdom, and for the return of common land seized by nobles for private use. Copies of the Twelve Articles flew from the presses and were widely distributed across Germany, with tens of thousands circulated during the months in which the rebellion was at its peak. Although rebels like those in Swabia saw themselves as acting well within the pious, scourging spirit of the times, Luther blanched at the means many of them deployed in his name. In Erfurt, in late April, around 11,000 peasants stormed the city, chalked a ploughshare, sickle and hoe crowned with a horseshoe on the gates of the bishop's palace and ordered that it was henceforth to be called the country palace then attempted forcibly to introduce the Lutheran mass into the city's churches. Meanwhile, in Weinsberg, a little way north of Stuttgart, things were bloodier. According to a local parson, a band of peasants arrived at Weinsberg Castle in mid-April, clambered over the walls, kidnapped the wife and children of the local nobleman and governor, Count Ludwig von Helfenstein, plundered his goods, and then set off to find the count himself in the nearby town. The townsmen, being Lutherans, let the rebels in. According to the parson, Lucifer and all his angels were then let loose, for they raged and stormed no differently than if they were mad and possessed by every devil. First they seized the count, then the nobility and the cavalry, and some were stabbed as they resisted. One well-to-do townsman tried to seek sanctuary in a church tower, but, as he called down to the peasants for mercy, Offering them money, someone fired a shot up at him and hit him, then climbed up and threw him out of the window. After this, the Count, his family and servants, more than twenty people in all, were taken to a field outside the town walls and murdered. The Count offered to give them a barrel of money if they would let him live, but there was no way out but to die, wrote the parson. When the Count saw that, he stood stock still until they stabbed him. Thus, all these were driven through with lances, and afterwards dragged out naked and let lie there. After all this, the peasants set a light to the castle and burnt it, and then marched off to Würzburg. 
Surely Luther had not predicted scenes like this when he began his investigations into the scriptural basis for indulgences. Horrified at the crimes being now perpetrated in the name of the reform movement he had begun, he tried increasingly to distance himself from the rebels' actions. His first effort was a pamphlet called An Admonition to Peace, which advised the rebels to calm down and negotiate for better conditions. But when that fell on deaf ears, he wrote a much less conciliatory tract, entitled Against the Murderous Thieving Hordes of Peasants. In this, he condemned the peasants for misappropriating the cause of church reform and using it as a cover to commit horrible sins and crimes, and advocated a strong crackdown by their social betters. Plainly, Luther was shaken by what he had seen. Yet it was all now out of his control. As the peasants' war raged, other reformers, who had risen to prominence in Luther's wake, notably a radical preacher called Thomas Munzer, threw themselves into the fight on the side of the rebels. But Luther could not bring himself to join them. Thus he ended up on the side of the nobility, which was not a pretty place to be. In May 1525, after a period of paralysis, the German aristocracy rallied and crushed the peasants with brute force and extreme vindictiveness. In a series of uncompromising military assaults all over Germany, tens of thousands of peasants were slaughtered. Preacher leaders like Munzo were captured and tortured to death. On the 21st of May, Luther received a letter from a councillor in his hometown of Mansfeld, relating what punishments had been meted out in the local area. At Heldrungen, they have beheaded five priests. After the greater part of the citizens in Frankenhausen were slain and others taken prisoner, those who remained alive were released at the plea of the women of the town, but on condition that the women should punish the two priests who were still there. Both priests were beaten with cudgels by all the women in the marketplace, it is said, for half an hour after they were dead. It was a sorry deed. Whoever does not take pity on such an act is truly no human being. I fear that it looks as if you are acting as the Lord's prophet. There is so much punishment that I fear that Thuringia and the county will only gradually recover. Robbery and murder are the order of the day here. It was a savage end to a shocking episode, the bloodiest popular uprising in European history before the French Revolution of the late 18th century. An imperial deed of 1526, summoned by Charles V to discuss the official reaction to the rebellion, concluded that the common man rather grievously forgot himself, but recommended lenience so as to prevent further outbreaks of popular rage. This was a rare gracious sentiment, but it was by no means the end of the bloodshed and tumult Luther's protests would bring about. Although the German Peasants' War was a major disturbance to the peace in the heartlands of his empire, Charles V largely delegated the political response to his younger brother, Ferdinand, Archduke of Austria, who was his de facto deputy in Central and Eastern Europe. This was not for lack of interest, but because Charles was immersed in the events of the Italian Wars. A sporadic struggle between Europe's great powers for supremacy below the Alps had been underway in Italy, on and off, for 30 years. In 1525, as the German peasants were taking up arms, Charles seemed to sniff the possibility of total victory. 
the scent emanated from the Duchy of Milan. There, on the 24th of February, an imperial army, led by Charles's experienced commander, Charles de la Noy, attacked a French army besieging the town of Pavia. Lanois' aim was to drive off the French from Pavia and ultimately away from the whole duchy. But he did far better than that. In four hours of fighting, the imperial army crushed the French, killing many leading French nobles. Even better, the prisoners taken on the battlefield included King Francis I himself. The monarch surrendered gracefully in the field, but he was not treated especially kindly thereafter. Francis was removed from Italy to Madrid, where he was kept for nearly a year. Only in March 1526, when he had ceded to Charles's terms and swathes of territory in a treaty that heavily favoured the empire, was he released. Francis had been forced to transfer to the emperor his claims to Burgundy, Milan and Flanders, and to hand over his two young sons as surety. It was a round humiliation. It looked like a thunderous triumph for Charles, yet, as things soon transpired, it was not. In the first place, the cost of the long years of fighting which had preceded victory at Pavia was astronomical. On the day that Pavia and Francis were captured, Charles already owed his armies 600,000 ducats, an impossibly massive sum, in back pay. And in the second, King Francis had no intention whatever of keeping to the terms he had agreed. Almost immediately upon his release, the aggrieved French king made plain his intention to ignore the Treaty of Madrid, which he argued was a disgraceful peace made under duress. For moral and political support, he wrote to the papal court. By now Pope Leo was dead. His successor, Adrian VI, had lasted less than two years before he too expired. So the new pope was another Medici, Leo's first cousin Giulio, a career churchman of long experience who had taken the name Clement VII. Clement was almost as wary of Charles V as Francis was. He therefore officially relieved Francis of any undertakings he had given while an imperial prisoner. And there was more. Not only did Clement absolve Francis of his promises, he also committed the papacy to a formal alliance with France, the purpose of which was to drive Charles and his imperial influence out of the whole Italian peninsula. This alliance was called the League of Cognac. Its members included France, the Papacy, Venice, Milan and Florence. Of course, its very existence was a gross affront to Charles. As he realised the hollowness of his victory and his obligation to continue fighting a war which was already beyond even his ample means, he became depressed, full of dumps and solitary musing, wrote the English ambassador at the imperial court. But there was little time for sulking. Another round of wars in the Italian peninsula was underway. The Sack of Rome At Easter 1527, a mad, semi-naked, ruddy-faced preacher known as Brandano stalked the streets of Rome, prophesying impending damnation. Brandano, who dressed as Martin Luther had for so long in the robes of an Augustinian friar, was an expert at gloomy prognostications and had been in and out of jail in the course of his career as punishment for disturbing the peace. Now he was at it again, 
As Clement VII appeared before worshippers at St. Peter's on Maundy Thursday, Brentano shimmied up a statue of St. Paul and started screaming at the Pope to repent. Calling Clement, thou bastard of Sodom, he warned the assembled crowds that unless all Romans repented of their monstrous sins, within a fortnight God would send them punishment worthy of the Old Testament. It did not take long for Brandano to be apprehended and thrown once more into a cell. But he had said his piece, and what was more, he would be proven right. That spring, imperial armies were on the loose in Italy and marching towards the holy city. Far from scaring Charles V away from Italy, the formation of the League of Cognac had spurred the emperor to push his chips forward. So too had news from the east, where the Ottomans, under their sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, had crushed a Hungarian army at the Battle of Mohacs in 1526, and were now overrunning southeastern Europe. Subduing his enemies in Italy seemed ever more essential if Charles was to defend Europe from the Turks. Of course, it was still terribly unclear how Charles's troops in Italy were to be paid or even fed but his advisers had reasoned that if there was anywhere in Europe where it was possible to live off plunder in the land, it was Italy. What was more, Charles had alighted on a frighteningly opportunistic way to both raise troops and heap pressure on Clement VII. He hinted that he might suspend the penalties against Lutherans that had been imposed at the Diet of Worms six years earlier. And he sent into Italy a huge force of Landsknechte, fierce, German-speaking mercenary units who wielded guns and pike, many of whom were not only hardened stormtroopers but Lutheran sympathisers. It would be a deadly combination. The imperial troops in Italy, 20,000 of them in all, split into Spanish, Italian and German factions, were under the command of a general known as Charles, Duke of Bourbon, a French traitor who had gone over to the emperor after falling out with Francis I. Unfortunately for all concerned, by the spring of 1527, Bourbon had more or less lost his grip on the army. Unpaid, ill and hungry, having spent the winter in the field, mutinous and eager for loot, the troops were now driving Bourbon as much as he was them. Having been in Milan the previous autumn, they flirted with attacking Florence in April but decided that it would be too hard to take. The real plunder, Bourbon and his troops concluded, was in Rome, where there lay two ways by which they might recoup their pay. Either they could force Clement to dig into his pockets, or they could take it as war spoils. At the end of April, they set off from Tuscany in the direction of the Holy City. They marched fast, fording rivers and almost hurtling down Roman roads at a pace of more than 20 miles per day. Less than two weeks later, just as the mad preacher Brandano had predicted, they were at Rome's gates. It was the 5th of May when Bourbon and his 20,000 appeared before Rome, and although they had great numbers, the odds looked to be stacked against them, since they had no decent artillery and half the men were on the brink of starvation. However, Desperation was a powerful motivation in itself. They had powered towards the city at such speed that, in the words of the accomplished Florentine historian and Medici associate Luigi Guicciardini, those within were not prepared for them 
either physically or in spirit, and not in any way organised for battle. Moreover, as the imperial army camped overnight, a fog descended over Rome, reducing visibility to less than six feet and making it impossible for the city's defenders to fire their own heavy guns. For a few hours, the contest would be more or less level. Around dawn on the 6th of May, Bourbon slung a white cloak over his armour and ordered an assault on the walls of Rome with ladders and sidearms. In his pre-battle speech, he offered incentives to the various companies of Spanish, Italian and German troops assembled before him. He spoke of booty and glory and the inestimable wealth of gold and silver that lay inside the city. With an eye on the Spaniards, he promised that if Rome fell, it would be the start of a world conquest in which all of Italy and France would follow, after which Charles V would lead his armies against the Ottomans before ranging with you in victory through Asia and Africa, where you will have a thousand opportunities to show the whole universe that you have far surpassed the glory and riches of the incomparable armies of Darius, Alexander the Great, or any other ruler known to history. Then, turning to the Germans, Bourbon decried the godless corruption of Rome's Catholic clergy, who led the citizens in lustful and effeminate pastimes, totally committed to amassing silver and gold with fraud, pillage and cruelty under the banner of Christian piety. Taking Rome, he told them, would fulfil the dream of which our infallible prophet Martin Luther has spoken many times. There was, it seemed, something for everyone. Bourbon worked his men into a frenzy and let them go. In the confusion of the thick fog and the early morning, the hungry imperialists took less than three hours to breach Rome's walls. They did so through an old-fashioned combination of scrambling up ladders and pulling at stones with their hands. Yet at the moment that the breakthrough came, disaster struck. Bourbon was in the middle of the action, resting his hand on a scaling ladder and exhorting the men above him to get to the top of the walls as best they could. Suddenly, through the press of bodies and the mist, a slug fired from a long gun known as an arquebus blasted straight through his head. He was killed on the spot. Around him, on both sides of the Roman defences, a combination of panic and bloodlust set in. Bourbon had been only barely in command of his troops when he was alive, but now he was dead, no one could steer them. Even as the blood seeped from the general's perforated skull, imperial troops who had clambered over Rome's walls and snuck in through vacant cannon holes, were flinging open the gates. The city had been taken by force, and a rampage was assured. More than 1,000 years after the cataclysm of AD 410, the barbarians had finally returned. The sack of Rome in May 1527 lasted for more than a week. Screaming, Spain, Spain, kill, kill! Imperial troops hurtled through into the city and ran wild. They made short work of the few thousand military defenders, including most of the Pope's Swiss guards, who were cut down in front of St Peter's. After that, the city was theirs. Clement himself fled to the Castel Sant'Angelo, the most secure fortress in the city, where he holed up along with several cardinals and a motley band of other citizens who barged in before the portcullis was dropped. He and those who made it in with him were the lucky ones, 
outside the fortress, anyone who had not managed to slip out of Rome before the gates were re-locked was in deep trouble. According to Guicciardini, when the imperial army realised all the defenders had fled and that they were truly in control of the city, the Spanish troops began to capture houses along with everyone and everything that was in them, and to take prisoners. The Germans, however, were obeying the articles of war and cutting to pieces anyone they came upon. It was soon a hellish scene. Women and children were every bit as vulnerable as men, and the clergy were killed along with the laity. Indeed, clerics were expressly targeted. It had been said earlier in the year that the erstwhile commander of the Landsnechter, Georg von Frunsberg, who left Italy a broken man when the troops began to mutiny in the spring, had gone about with a golden noose on his person in case he ever had the chance to hang the Pope. Now, German mercenaries had a chance to channel that violent mood. Relics including the heads of St. Peter, St. Paul, St. Andrew, along with fragments of the true cross and the crown of thorns, were shamefully trodden underfoot in that fury. Pope's tombs were ransacked. One group dressed a donkey in priestly vestments and murdered a churchman when he refused to feed the animal the Eucharist. Guicciardini's long and lurid account of the sack made it plain how fiercely anti-clerical the imperialists were, and how easily their attacks on the symbols of papal wealth spilled over into naked inhumanity. In the street you saw nothing but thugs and rogues carrying great bundles of the richest vestments and ecclesiastical ornaments and huge sacks full of all kinds of vessels of gold and silver, testifying more to the riches and empty pomp of the Roman curia than to the humble poverty and true devotion of the Christian religion. Great numbers of captives of all sorts were to be seen groaning and screaming, being swiftly led to makeshift prisons. In the streets there were many corpses. Many nobles lay there cut to pieces, covered with mud and their own blood, and many people only half dead lay miserably on the ground. Nuns were raped, priests were killed on their altars. Although there were occasional altercations between the Spanish and Germans about the extent to which churches ought to be despoiled, this was of little use or solace to the clergy themselves, who, if they were not killed outright, could be seen wandering the streets, in torn and bloody shirts, with cuts and bruises all over their bodies from the indiscriminate whippings and beatings they had received. Some had thick and greasy beards, some had their faces branded, and some were missing teeth, others were without noses or ears. All the while, armed companies went house to house, torturing people into revealing the whereabouts of their valuables. Noblemen were forced to empty cesspits with their bare hands to reveal whether they had stashed any booty in the sewage. Some had their noses cut off, others were force-fed their own genitals. For the invaders, it was all too easy. The Romans were surprised, sacked and slaughtered with incredible ease and enormous profit, wrote Guicciardini. He was right. Only slowly did the Romans' torments start to ease. The terrors of the sack lasted for around ten days, and even after this, Rome was still an occupied city. The Pope and his circle remained barricaded in the Castel Sant'Angelo for a month, only negotiating their safety on the 7th of June, at the price of 400,000 ducats. 
Even then, although most of those who had been cooped up in the fortress were allowed to leave, Clement himself was forced to stay there for his own safety. He was only released in early December, under the cover of darkness, for fear of enraging the rank and file of the occupying army. By this time, around 8,000 Romans had been killed by the rampaging imperial troops. And perhaps twice as many again had died from other causes. Disease scythed through the Roman population, spread by the invading army and the squalid conditions of a broken city. This was undoubtedly the nadir of Clement's papacy. And although he was personally safe, he was forever after under Charles V's thumb. The emperor had been delighted almost beyond measure when the first news of the sack reached his court. One observer said Charles laughed so much that he had hardly been able to eat his supper. The Pope was his. Italy might follow. Although there would be many serious challenges throughout the rest of his long reign, this was a defining, generation-shaping achievement. On the 22nd of February 1530, Charles appeared in Bologna, and Pope Clement crowned him with the Iron Crown of Lombardy, first seized for the empire so many centuries earlier by Charlemagne. Two days later, on his 30th birthday, Charles was officially crowned as Holy Roman Emperor. He paraded around the city with Clement at his side. A wonderful new decade, indeed a new era, stretched out before him. The sack of Rome in 1527 had important consequences, many of which remain with us today. In England, it is best known because it derailed King Henry VIII's plans to annul his marriage to Queen Catherine of Aragon. Henry's ministers submitted the request for papal dispensation to divorce while Clement was languishing under effective house arrest in Rome in the autumn of 1527. Since Catherine was Charles's aunt, there was no way the request could be granted. As a result, a bull-headed Henry charged down another, far more destructive path. As we have already seen, he withdrew England from the Roman Church, announced his own supremacy in matters of both church and state, and allowed Lutheranism into a realm where previously it had been forbidden. A page was turned in English, and eventually British and Irish, history, and Henry's reign still marks the boundary between the medieval and early modern worlds. But of course, England was only one part of the story. There were serious consequences all over the West. In Italy, Rome lay half-ruined, its population literally decimated. Any dreams of a united and independent Italy, which had been current in some quarters in the 1530s, now drifted away, not to be revived until the Risorgimento of the 19th century. Meanwhile, the peninsula's appeal as a hub for Renaissance artists lay in tatters. It could be argued with long hindsight that the height of the Italian Renaissance passed when Raphael died in 1520, although Michelangelo was still working in the Sistine Chapel in the 1540s. But the psychological and financial trauma of the sack certainly helped ensure that there was not another late flourish of this wonderful movement. The Spanish, by contrast, were ascendant, and the combination of their swaggering progress through the new world and the old, along with the formal unification of the Aragonese and Castilian crowns, launched a new golden age on the Iberian Peninsula. It was eventually personified by Charles V's son and successor, Philip II, under whose patronage 
Madrid and the Grand Palace of El Escorial became the beating heart of European sophistication. The French, for their part, confounded by events in 1527 and looking for a new partner against the empire, moved towards an alliance with the Ottoman Empire. To be sure, that would have astonished generations of medieval French crusaders. Yet it was symbolic of a coming age. The Franco-Ottoman alliance, spawned at the end of the Middle Ages, endured from the mid-16th century until the reign of Napoleon, and it ensured that the Balkans and Eastern Europe, up to the borders of Austria, would feel the gravitational pull of Constantinople until the eve of the First World War. Meanwhile, conciliation with the world's leading Islamic power was not the only legacy of the events of 1527 in France. The religious fallout was just as significant. For in the aftermath of Rome's fall, a growing reform movement flourished from the 1530s onwards, spurred by homegrown reformers like John Calvin. By mid-century, groups of Protestants known as Huguenots began to pose serious problems for the French crown, and tensions eventually erupted in the French wars of religion which were fought from the 1560s until the 1590s, cost tens of thousands of lives, and left religious wounds in French society that were still bleeding in the 18th century. Theologically, of course, the sack of Rome had a profound effect on the Catholic Church. Charles V had wished for some time to hold an ecumenical council to decide on a church-wide strategy for combating Lutheran heresies and the burgeoning Reformation. With the papacy at his command, he eventually had his way. The painfully drawn-out Council of Trent, convened in several sessions between 1545 and 1563, fundamentally restated and redrew the doctrine of the Catholic Church in a form that lasted for 300 years. Much overdue reform was enacted. Indulgences were not banned, but their sale was eventually forbidden in 1567. Yet Trent also made it very clear that there could be no reconciliation with the Protestants. So the schism in the Western Church, which endures to this day, was complete. And although neither Luther, who died in 1546, nor Charles, who followed him in 1558, lived to see this confirmed, they, and their overlapping bands of supporters, had played a fundamental role in ensuring that it was so. It is to their struggles that we must trace the fact that today, one-eighth of the world's population, more than 900 million people, are members of a Protestant congregation. Of course, all this represents only the barest of summaries of the world that was emerging as imperial troops slunk away from the bloodied streets of Rome in 1527. To go any further with it would be to burst the banks of this already voluminous book. But I hope that this, along with the chapters that have gone before, should be sufficient for us to see that by the 1530s, the Western world was no longer recognisably medieval. The rise of the printed word, encounters with the new world, the collapse and fracture of the church militant, the demographic rearrangements caused by waves of the Black Death, the humanistic and artistic revolutions of the Renaissance, all these things and more, had recast the shape and feel of the West in ways that contemporaries explicitly recognised even as the process was taking place. The Middle Ages did not exactly die on the streets of Rome in 1527, but afterwards, 
It was very clear that something had been lost and was never coming back. Living in the early 21st century, in the midst of our own time of epochal global change, we may recognise a little of this. Our world is also being recast around us through the combination of a changing global climate, pandemic diseases, technological progress, a revolution in communication and publishing, rapid and uncontrollable mass migration, and a reformation in cultural values centred on the celebration of the individual. Is it possible that we not only can be interested in, but may even sympathise with, the people who lived through the topsy-turvy Middle Ages? Or would that be unhistorical? I shall leave the answer up to you. For it is now late. I have written a lot, and it is time to go. Martin Luther put it well, in the conclusion to a letter he composed in 1530, while hiding from Charles V at a secret location he named only as the Wilderness. This is getting too long. More another time, he wrote. Forgive this long letter. Amen.